This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. But it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome. This is The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio this Monday. Wow, what a Monday it has turned out to be. I'm Guy Johnson in London. I'm joined by Alex Steele over in New York. Similar problems, different cities. COVID certainly surging. Equity markets under pressure. Uh, We've also got the added wrinkle over in the United States uh, of Joe Biden's Build Back Better program basically being torpedoed uh, by Senator Joe Manchin over the weekend. There's a number of different factors into the mix, Alex, uh, but certainly equities uh, taking a hammering today. The Nasdaq near session lows. Uh, Yeah, and what's so interesting, though, is what's moving within the S&P. The best performing stock is Carnival. And then you got Pfizer and Clorox. So Pfizer's the vaccine booster story. Clorox's go by toilet paper story. But then Carnival's the reopening story. So it it, it doesn't feel like a straight line, necessarily. Carnival uh, came out with earnings and said the first half looks murky, but they could return to profitability in the second half of 2022. Who has visibility into 2022? I have no idea. I, I can't. I, have I don't no have visibility for tomorrow. Week. Exactly. Um, yeah, I, 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 it feels logical though, doesn't it? That that would be the case. I, mm-hmm. Summers tend to turn out to be a little bit better at the moment. It looks like winters are going to be difficult for a while. I don't mean to extrapolate, and and I have to be honest, no idea. But certainly, recent experience would condition us to believe that 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 kind of this time of year mm-hmm. is going to be bumpy for a while. Um, but we don't know. So, so it seems logical that the carnival would say that we're getting better at treating it. We're getting better at understanding it. Um, but but you look at what is happening with Omicron right now. The numbers are breathtaking. Uh, we're seeing, again, over 90,000 cases being reported here in the UK today. Yep. And here we're having conversations, at least in New York City, about um, inpatient visits and hospitals are going to become virtual to make room. We're preparing for a surge in hospitalizations. Um, in terms of London, for example, you guys reported, what, over 90,000 cases and hospitalization is also on the rise. Exactly what we didn't want to see. Yep. Uh, we're boosting pretty hard. We're trying to figure out exactly uh, what we're what we're looking at there. Um, Boris Johnson is trying to work out whether or not we're going to have a Christmas lockdown, Christmas restrictions, uh, no restrictions at all. Um, that's kind of what we're trying to figure out. The only advantage I think we have over you, Alex, is that we have a reasonably efficient distribution of testing. So getting hold of testing is relatively straightforward, lateral flow tests. So I'm hoping that people use those in the run-up to Christmas. I I had to go to various events over the weekend. I think I lateral flow myself three times Mm -hmm. before I went to all those events. So Mm -hmm. I'm hoping just people use it in that kind of way. Bloomberg Sam Fazelli joining us now on the line. We've got a lot to talk about with Sam, so let's keep him around uh, for a little bit. Sam, uh, what is your reading of the tea leaves right now? Where are we in this surge? Yeah, so hi, Guy, and thanks for having me back on. I think we're... um uh, I wouldn't. I, 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 the numbers suggest that we're about a week in for the UK, at least, or just over a week, and um, and that this is going to carry on for another couple of weeks. What, where we'll end up in terms of the peak, I don't know. But um, I'm basing all this on what happened in South Africa, which, of course, is a different country with different characteristics. 
So for that's for the UK. Europe, I think, is a week or so behind uh, the UK, and the US is um, yet another week, I suspect, behind both Europe and UK. So not looking great in terms of case counts. What I don't understand is, and, and I think I guess London, you can make the same case, is that Omicron's hitting New York City and, well, New York, uh, quite difficult, uh, quite hard. Yet vaccination rates are pretty high. Boosters, I'm not quite sure of. But then other high-density populations in the U.S. aren't getting hit as hard. Do we know what's happening specifically in New York? This is totally talking my own book here. Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, I think it's probably the same as in in London. Why would London be any? What is the characteristic that London and New York have in common? Is that they have they are one of the largest international travel bases. Mm. So, if you had 500 cases of Omicron coming into the UK, into London, as opposed to 30 into Paris, for example, you just have that fewer number of seeding events that would then go on and multiply. So I think that's what's going on. And there's also another angle in London. I don't want to play that too much because you have this, I don't believe that if, if, if you vaccinate or not, it makes no difference. So what difference does it make if vaccinations aren't very high in terms of London? Uh, of course, we're talking about infections here again, not disease, not severe disease. And, but there's that element too. London, for some reason, is a bit of an outlier when it comes to vaccination rates. Would you shut down for Christmas? Uh, only if you're really, really seeing pressure on the NHS, uh, i.e. healthcare system. And that guy comes from two angles. One is if you require every doctor, nurse, auxiliary, etc., who gets an infection to quarantine for 10 days, then you have a problem because this is a highly infectious virus. Um, that's number one. I think that's the bigger worry. The next to it uh, is, of course, hospitalizations. But if we believe the data that's coming out of Africa, if that is South Africa, if that is applicable to other geographies, then you should have a much easier way, uh, time of it when it comes to um, admissions. We have been talking about getting vaxxed and getting boosted. Are we going to have to get another booster soon to sort of make the dose match? For example, Moderna said that, you know, half of their dosage increased antibodies 37-fold, a full dose, though, increased at 80-plus-fold. Yeah, I mean, if, you, if I gave you a gram of it, uh, it, it would give you much more antibodies. But we can't keep <laughs> dosing in higher yeah, and okay. higher and higher because you already have side effect issues. Um, and reality is, what are we trying to solve for here? Are we trying mm-hmm. to solve... a a circular problem with infections because it will happen again, Alex. This third shot effect will wane and there will be a rise. They're seeing that already in Israel. Um, So what are we going to do? Vaccinate people every four months? uh, Or are we going to eventually move on and say, look, we'll accept that you shouldn't, maybe three days, if you're sick, don't come to work. And uh, let's try and at least protect the healthcare workers. But beyond that, the larger society, we just let them go. If Severity isn't that bad. What do you? I, can we read anything into to what we're seeing with the hospitalisation numbers at the moment? Um, I mean, I, I, this because yeah. this this is where it kind of this is what it's about. I like give you can have high case counts, case, high case counts, but if you're not getting the hospitalisations, then we're we're good to go. But but, but I don't know that. yet. Yeah, you, guy, you will get hospitalisations because. You know, nothing is 100% protective, right? Um, but what's going to happen is, this is what we talked about right at the beginning. If you have five-fold the level of, level of infections, 
and it's half as problematic as regards severity, you still have a rise in hospitalizations. And then the next point is, well, do they need oxygen? Do they need ventilators? Will they need yeah. to be um, staying in for two weeks as opposed to three days? So all of that is elements that, that South Africa is answering. But again, South Africa is South Africa. We need to see how it unfolds in the UK and elsewhere. Do you think here in the US we have hit peak vaccination? I certainly hope not, because, uh, you know, it's a long way to go still to catch up with the rest of the, say, the, this side of the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly hope not, Alex. And I, and I think that we just need to get people convinced on that first and second dose. What's left to convince them? Do they need 10 years of evidence? In which case, that's difficult. So I don't know what politicians will do to entice those people. Yep. Yep. You and me both. The D.C. has a lot of issues on hand. Uh, we'll talk about that later on in the show. Sam Bazelli, you're sticking with us, a senior pharmaceutical analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. Again, some of the uh, headlines from the virus here is that London hospitalizations surge. Davos canceled. No World Economic Forum in the winter is getting pushed uh, to the summer of 2022. Uh, Moderna says its third dose is pretty solid to help antibodies. Anyway, lots more to digest. Sam is sticking with us. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. And the markets here, tech still getting taken out down by 1.6%. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You are listening to The Cable. Let's talk about the ingredients that we use in our battle against COVID. The vaccines, obviously, front and centre. Today, Novavax uh, getting clearance to be used within the EU. How big a shift is this going to be? Let's bring back into the conversation Bloomberg's Sam Fazelli. Sam, how do we how do we incorporate a new vaccine into what we're doing right now? And how different do you think the public's response will be to the, the offer of a new vaccine versus one that, that we already know about? Yeah, so I think there's two elements here. Number one is that the approval by the European agency should hopefully mean, and also WHO has already said, go ahead, um, that they can get doses, if they can manufacture and if they can deliver, of a vaccine that's easier shipped to low-middle-income countries. And that's critical because uh, it's, uh, it's where the, the, the need is at the minute. The other element, of course, is that I have a personal friend who is, keeps asking me to bring him a dose of AstraZeneca from the UK because he believes that that for a booster, that, that, that is a more natural vaccine, if ever such a thing existed, than the mRNA vaccines. So there are people who have this fear, and I'm assuming that this will allay their fear, but we don't want to tell them that... that there's elements of, of, of a um, that's produced in um, insect cells and et cetera, et cetera. They don't need to know that detail. The fact is, I think it does make a difference for some people in terms of boosters. I just don't quite understand, Sam, where the communication fault is. Um, obviously, here in the U.S., we're quite polarized. But um, what more communication can be done? Like, what words need to be said? Um, we tend to use a lot of sticks now. Do the sticks even work? Yeah, well, I mean, they worked for a little bit in, in France, but you get to that hard um, wall of believers who just don't think that the vaccine is the right thing to do for them, and, of, and that, that's, that's the problem. Now, that's the, the biggest stick would be that, yep, if you have to mandate it. You have to have it. You have no choice. And that hasn't really happened yet. Um, 
And I think that would be quite difficult. So uh, beyond that, I don't know what else you can do here. You know, there are people who, ha- who, who are malicious in their attempt to put people off vaccination, and they're not going to change. So we need to, to think of ways of constantly delivering that message and winning the war bit by bit. Uh, I, I noticed that the, uh, the French police have ID'd 182,000 fake health passes. Yikes. Uh, which which kind of tells you that some people are very much... They, they want to carry on their lives, they want the past sanitaire, but, but they don't want to, to actually have the vaccine in their arm. So they're faking it, basically, uh, to make sure that they can make it. Um, Sam, in, in terms of what comes after this, if, if, if Omicron drops down, if we get a really sort of big big kind of high spike and then it drops down relatively quickly is delta done has does omicron if it becomes the dominant variant wipe out delta or if if omicron is short and violent does delta come back after it i really don't know how to answer that question because it's very tough to know uh, whether the two provide immunity for each other and if the vaccines we know the vaccines are better against Delta than Omicron from a, a protection by antibodies against infection, possibly, right? Sorry, too many, <laughs> too yeah. many caveats there. But we just don't have the data. We just go by these neutralization data. So it's possible that by the time that, that we go through the peak of Omicron, whoever it is that it's finding to infect, um, that we end up with a duality of, 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 mm-hmm. um, of cases, Omicron and Delta. And then, of course, the question comes back down to it, to the point again. Does it matter? Or do we need to think about boosting again to just keep infections low? That's the problem. Sam, we always love talking to you. We could talk to you forever. Sam Fazelli of Bloomberg Intelligence. Stay safe. We will, I'm sure, chat with you tomorrow as well. All right, so that's the science side of it. Let's get to the political side. Coming up, we'll talk about what the UK government is going to do. According to the BBC, uh, Boris Johnson says we won't hesitate to take action. That's the latest. No press conference today. We'll break down what the options are in the middle of an Omicron surge. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. I must say, people, we, we will have to reserve the, the possibility of taking further action to, to protect the public. Boris Johnson uh, speaking on what comes next. Um, we may need to take further action, but we're not going to take it today. Uh, we have had a cabinet meeting. Apparently, that was a difficult cabinet meeting. Um, and at the moment, it looks as if we are not going to evolve the current policy stance, at least today. Tomorrow is a different day. Who knows what's ultimately going to happen? be happening here. Uh, but at the moment, it looks the balance of probability probably pointing us in this direction that we're going to have restrictions after Christmas rather than before. Um, Alex Morales joining us now, Bloomberg's Alex Morales, to give us his take on all of this. Alex, read the tea leaves for me. Where are we here in the UK uh, in terms of the evolution of further restrictions? Well, I mean, obviously, the Prime Minister has only literally just popped up on TV um, after a very lengthy cabinet meeting. Um, we can assume that that meeting was very lengthy because there are some disagreements in cabinet about where to, where to go next. Um, 
we, we know they brought in some COVID uh, rules last week, but Johnson suffered a massive rebellion amongst his MPs. So it's very, very difficult for the Prime Minister to bring in any more COVID rules. Um, the Prime Minister's uh, statement just now, he, he, he essentially was saying, we're not bringing in any new rules now, um, but we keep everything under review. Um, he urged Britons to be cautious. Um, so for now... We don't know whether there are going to be new rules. Um, a lot of the speculation centres on whether he'll bring them in after Christmas. Um, last year, he was forced to essentially cancel Christmas for a lot of Britons. He doesn't want to do that the second time. Um, I think it's very, very, very unlikely that he'll bring in new rules before Christmas. Um, but it's still, um, uh, still very much open mm-hmm. that he might do so afterwards. Alex, what kind of support does he have right now in his own party and pretty much anywhere? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you'll have seen last week um, that uh, not only did he have this huge rebellion in Parliament, um, 101 of his MPs opposed um, bringing in light-to-touch COVID, COVID um, rules. So you can imagine the size of any rebellion if he tries to do anything stronger. Um, and it, in, more widely amongst the electorate, um, the Tories lost uh, a special election in a seat that they've held for almost two centuries. So it clearly... Everything's heading in the wrong direction um, in terms of Johnson's popularity, um, and now he's he's sort of squeezed between scientists who are advising quicker action to reduce the strains on the NHS over winter, the National Health Service that is, um, and his MPs uh, who really don't want to see that. Alex, great stuff. Thank you very much indeed. Bloomberg's Alex Morales uh, covering the latest out of the UK. Uh, As he says, we've just wrapped up a cabinet meeting. Boris Johnson has been making uh, a statement uh, via a pulled clip, it looks like, on the BBC, uh, saying, we will not hesitate to take action, quote, uh, but no restrictions being imposed today. Uh, Christmas is obviously still a few days away, but certainly just in terms of the the mood music, Alex, it, Alex Steele, that is, we're, we look like we're heading for maybe restrictions after Christmas. How soon after Christmas we will see. I have to wonder, is part of this a threat? Like, don't be stupid or else I'm going to have to do more restrictions. Well, no, he, the, the point is that I don't think he can. At this point, I don't think he can do more restrictions. Um, he doesn't have the political backing for more restrictions. But will he I have it he, after the holidays? Well, I think I think if the numbers are significantly higher, then I think it becomes easier. I also think that once we're through the holidays, I think it becomes easier for politicians to, to make that call. Mm. The damage done mm-hmm. will be less. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there is a growing anticipation that, that something probably will need to change uh, in, in January. So so that would that would be an easier lift rather than cancelling Christmas, which would be what he'd effectively be doing today. And I think that would, given the, the kind of the political story in the UK at the moment, be quite damaging. People are already pretty upset, it seems, with Boris Johnson, judging by by what happened in the by-election last week, so I think it'd be an, it would be an easier narrative to to deliver, particularly if if we started to see a climb in hospitalizations there, which we're not seeing yet. They are and rising. They, they are, are rising. rising, but they're only at four. The hospitalizations are up, but deaths are only at kind of forty at the moment. Mm-hmm. So you're not seeing that being reported every night on the BBC in the way that it was that, before. That, that it was before. Um, okay, so so anecdotally, like, what are you hearing? Either you or other other people? Like, are you guys? Canceling Christmas, like here for me, I'm trying to stay in as much of a bubble as possible. Um, so to avoid any sort of like anything until I can be with my parents, I have to just make it through Wednesday. What, what are you guys doing over there? Well, I think the plan over here is just to test. Mm-hmm. 
Um, Which is where I, you guys win. <laughs> yeah, so so I, we have a I, we have a draw full of, of tests at home for my for my eldest son who who has to have them from school. I've got a I've got a box in my drawer here at work of, oh, of wow. seven tests. Um, I, they are freely available. There are so I was in in Boots this morning, one of the biggest uh, the, the biggest supermarket chain here, and there was definitely a notice on the on the pharmacy counter saying we've run out we don't mm-hmm. have supplies at the moment but i think they are reasonably accessible so the, the plan is basically just to test mm-hmm. um and see what happens i clearly I, I know a lot of people that are testing positive um so clearly the plans are going to have to change at relatively short notice and i think a lot of people are going to be hit by that so mm-hmm. i think it's going to be i think there's going to be a last minute dash for smaller Christmas meals. That mm-hmm. would be my prediction. Mm-hmm. Just judging by what my wife has been up to today. Fair enough. Um, well, and then this is where I think we really diverge um, is the testing issue. And it seems that was, critical, doesn't it? You want to be able to make yeah. smart decisions. Is everybody at this party? Is everybody at this table COVID free? Yes, no. I, if you can test everybody on the morning, it's better. You've got a pretty good idea of um, what's going on. Yeah, I mean, so last week I tried to get ahead of this a little bit because my husband was exposed at work. It wasn't direct contact, though. Um, and I, no one could find a test. So I went online and I ordered uh, about six tests. Um, cost me $200. Like, I don't understand. Yeah. Like that, like that, that that just is that's really prohibitive. Which is crazy because you want people to test exactly, and that's going to be extremely prohibitive. Um, I, and then and then you can send them for a PCR test, which is what happens here. You test positive on a lateral flow, you go and get a PCR, then they can sequence it, and then we know where we are. Anyway, right. we'll carry on the conversation. We're going to talk turkeys of a different kind next. Uh, that's coming up. The oh, Turkish well lira once well again done. being apps. It's a pretty cheesy line. Yeah. Um, mm. Damien Sasso is going to join us next to talk about what is happening there. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, London. 5.30 where you are, 12.30 right here in the U.S. We're about halfway through the trading day. Uh, Volume fine. Could be better, could be worse. But the equity sell-off, definitely for real. 1.6% is where we sit down on the NASDAQ and on the Dow. I'm taking a look within the S&P. Um, you're looking at the travel stock still holding up well, um, and you have a lot of the cyclical names uh, selling off. But I just find it really interesting when you have Clorox, Pfizer, and Carnival, the top three performing sectors within the uh, stocks within the S&P. That's like reopening, stay at home, and vaccines. That's kind of what we're going to learn from that. Um, that's the lay of the land in the equity market. In the bond market, you're seeing like a slight bid, um, but I say slight because it's just the belly and the front end, and the re-rating is nothing to write home about. Anywhere between one or two basis points uh, lower in the bond market, and even the dollar is not really catching that safe haven bid. Uh, commodities, though, uh, getting hurt quite hard. Uh, so it's it's a risk off. We have to wonder how seriously we're going to take the risk off guy and how long it's going to take. Yeah, I, it was interesting today. So the market here in Europe, gap lower, came back a touch and then traded in the tightest range I think I've seen in a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, which tells me that, yes, while volume is okay, I, nothing really happened this afternoon at all. And I think if this had been kind of a normal market day, I think you'd have seen a little bit more direction. Mm-hmm. And I just, it, we didn't get it today. So I'm quite skeptical about what is happening here in terms of the signals that we can take oh, from, totally. what is, 
what's going on in the markets. And absolutely. I mean, how many people are actually in the office trading? Um, well, yeah, not many. Not many. One area of the market, though, we're definitely seeing some movement is what's happening in Turkey. So we just had President Erdogan announcing some measures to try and curb the effect of the recent lira route. Shocker, shocker, we hit another record high for dollar lira, which means another record low uh, for the Turkish currency. There was a cabinet meeting today. Um, today's Monday, right? Yeah. It was a cabinet yeah. meeting today, um, and the lira has stemmed some of its losses. But still, we're looking at some serious volatility that we haven't seen in over 20 years. Uh, Damien Sassauer, BI, a Bloomberg Intelligence Chief Emerging Market Credit Strategist, uh, joins us. Hey, Damien, what did you read into this recent announcement? What are they doing? What's Erdogan trying to do? He needs to restore some confidence. How's that going? Yeah, no, I just saw that headline. They're going to introduce a new financial instrument to sort of ease the burden. No additional information at this stage, but my that goodness, sounds great. Talk about we're going to yeah, do some no, stuff. Great, yeah, that's going to work too, right? <laughs> exactly. I mean, look, it's it's been a tough go for the lira. I mean, we know that it's been falling out of bed, but the price action today has been nothing sort of spectacular. I mean, we broke through eighteen like a knife into hot butter. I mean, we were down at one point nine and a half percent on the day. We're now down just 6%, just 6%. But as we all know, the currency is off 60% year to date. And what's interesting this time around is, you know, obviously, you know, uh, Istanbul had basically put in all sorts of um, 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 restrictions to prevent offshore um, investors from speculating in the lira. So what's driving the weakness? Well, it's domestics, it's locals, it's Turkish households and companies. Right now, 60% of all local deposits are being held offshore. That's $226 billion worth. And so, you know, that's what's causing the lira volatility, you know. I mean, it's the fact that this crisis of confidence is spilled over domestically. And, you know, that's that, that's really where we are. You know, no longer can Turkey, you know, print money to finance its debt obligations. It's basically a loss of confidence that's moving the market here today. Uh, we're starting to see volatility in the stock markets. In terms of the impact that that will have? Exactly. I mean, Guy, you pointed that out. It's a great point because really when you see is when you have an environment like this, a lot of domestic, a lot of local households, they invest in the stock market because it's the one area that's going to sort of, you know, you know, allow it to sort of weather the storm. Well, now we're seeing the Turkish stock market fall out of bed, and that creates um, hyperinflationary risk, in my opinion. I'm not for at all calling that, uh, calling that we're going to, you know, get into a hyperinflationary yeah, but the risk in is Turkey. There. But the risk is there. I mean, it's just, I mean, look no further than January of 2005 when the new Turkish lira, which is what we trade on now, replaced the old Turkish lira after a period of rapid inflation. I mean, CPI had averaged something on the order of 60% year over year for the decade into 2005. And I'm not suggesting we're there yet, but that's what this is indicating to me. So let me take the other side. Uh, I asked on television what kind of growth or what kind of rate hikes would we need to see to calm everything down. Is there anything that Erdogan can do policy-wise, like what he's doing right now, that could also materially help longer term, aside from just leaving office, which I feel like is doubtful? We've been through this so many times, the wash, rinse, and repeat, Alex, that I don't I'm not convinced that rate hikes alone will do it. I mean, that's just me. You know, after all that's transpired, I mean, look, we have Bloomberg Economics saying it's going to take something on the order of 600 to 800 basis points of rate hikes to stabilize the currency. Deutsche Bank on Friday was calling for over 1,100 bips of of rate hikes to do it. So it's not even a number. It's not even a level at this point. It's about confidence. It's about credibility. And as I said, there is a crisis of confidence on the ground in Turkey and has nothing to do with foreigners. It has everything to do with what's going on domestically. And so, again, you got to dust off Philip Kagan, monetary dynamics of hyperinflation, 1956, because that's where we're headed. How do you run an economy 
if you think that Reba is not the way to go, if if interest is not the way to go, what can what? How different does Turkey's economy need to be structured, if that is the case? Because he he is making the point that that this is a religious issue as well, which in certain cases it it may be. I there shouldn't. If you think about the way that the that the religion thinks about it, it, it does say that there should be no interest, which implies no interest rates. So, how do you run an economy? How do you bring those two things together? You know, I, 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 it's the sins of the past, right? I mean, you can't all of a sudden institute that type of a philosophy if you have. No, he's talked. Overhead. It's not the first time he's talked about it. He has talked about it over yeah. the years. And look, I really wish I really wish somebody would explain to him that, you know, interest takes many different forms. <laughs> you yeah. know, inflation is interest, you know, and that's what we're experiencing now. You know, it's not, you know, a coupon payment on an obligation, right? And I get it. I And I respect, you know, Erdogan's Islamic view on usury. I get it. But, you know, I mean, interest takes many different forms. And in an economy such as like what we're seeing here in Turkey and its reliance on offshore credit to continue uh, allowing it to grow – you know, you just can't you just can't casually disregard it and try this experimental economic policy that we're seeing here and not expect there to be a lot of pain along the way. And unfortunately, the pain is being felt most deeply by those on the ground in Turkey. Mm-hmm. You know, the, 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 the low, I mean, the poverty stricken, the low and middle income classes, it's not the wealthy. The wealthy are the ones with all those dollars sitting offshore. It's, 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 it's the masses. It's the real populace. And that's why AKP, which is the, um, you know, which is Erdogan's uh, political yep. party, you know, confidence in it is so very low. And, you know, people are calling for perhaps a snap election ahead of the June 2003 change. And we'll see if that so, even happens. But I think something needs to happen at the top. OK, so let's just play this out for a second. Say, say it calls increase for a snap election. Don't things actually get worse? Because I can't imagine Erdogan saying, yeah, OK, good call. Um, very well might happen. In fact, what I think would have to happen is Erdogan himself would have to call for that early election. And the only way he's going to do that is if he thinks he stands a better chance of a snap of winning in a snap as opposed to waiting for June 2023, right? And look, I mean, far be it for me to judge in terms of all the changes we've seen in the government infrastructure in Turkey. But, you know, that's really kind of where we are. If he, if he can't control what's going on, you know, you might very well see that. And Look, you know, I mean, the political cost of his policy measures, I think it's ultimately going to see the AKP ousted from power in 2023. It's OK. It'll be fun to see how it's going to be an incredibly bumpy ride. Yeah, no kidding. Talk about some serious point. volatility. Um, all right, Damien Sassauer, thanks very much. Bloomberg Intelligence Chief Emerging Market Credit Strategist, who does not get a break this week because Turkey uh, definitely keeps blowing up. All right, let's talk about more about the market here. Uh, sell-off continues. Volume neither here nor there. Some of the reopening trade, though, still doing quite well. question we've been talking about is, when can we actually believe the market action? Like, When are we going to get through the recent uh, lack of trading to kind of get a real feel for where we're going to go? Some say March, some say January. We'll break it down with Kriti Gupta of Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Let's get more on these markets here. The S&P is looking for its biggest three-day drop since May. Some traders talking about lower volumes. We're obviously ahead of the holidays. It's going to be exacerbated uh, by some market swings. You're seeing some buying in the front end and the belly, um, but many warning of that reduction in liquidity. Guys, something we've been talking about in sort of a question of the day is how we frame our two hours of television is, is the mar- what's more important to the markets? Is it COVID or is it what's happening in D.C.? We'll get to the D.C. point uh, in just a moment. But I have to wonder, when you're taking a look at the market action, 
what's the right trade? How do you play volatility in the first quarter when there's going to be so many more questions? Do you wait to buy the dip? Do you sit in cash? Are treasuries a nice safe haven? Do you need to buy the dip in value at some point? Um, I mean, the Russell 2000 is getting completely destroyed, and value's really been underperforming there. Do you buy that? I mean, so those are the questions I think that are percolating in the market and among you know portfolio managers and their clients. Well, I, I think just judging by today's price action, it feels more COVID than mansion to me by quite some considerable margin. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the fact that I, like, the, 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 the financial markets react to what happens in New York first and then what happens elsewhere second, I think, still, despite the fact that we have a disaggregated kind of Wall Street now. Um, but nevertheless, things that happen in New York tend to kind of to focus minds, and yes, I think things we are, are the center of the universe. That this is clear. New York, continue almost. Um, <laughs> and and I think now that that the New York is seeing such a strong pickup mm. in people that have been vaccinated, boosted, had COVID, I, I think it's shocking people a little bit. And as a result of which, I think that's why you're seeing maybe the reaction that we're getting here today. As you say, over the last three days, it's been a fairly big move. It today feels like a sort of continuation and acceleration, maybe of of what came before. I think the mansion stuff. I I'm we'll talk to Bloomberg Zamari in the next block about this, but I feel that I think the market had already discounted so, that this was going to be a reduced bill by some considerable margin. So I think that where this gets more dicey for me is. The restriction things that we're gonna we're gonna be ending so phasing out the child ta- child cat tax credit, which many have said has been enormously helpful in ha- having them make ends meet. Um, things like student loan help, those things that have really helped cushion uh, people over the last you know year and a half, those are going to expire. And so yep. not addressing that in the Build Back Better in some capacity um, it is going to have a crunch. So that there is that portion of it. There is also the argument, and we'll talk about this in a second too, um, that Joe Manchin's just really worried about COVID and inflation. And once that gets under control, maybe we have a different kind of story. What is interesting is that today's price action has not seen a, a slow in deals. We've got some deals today, like yeah. BMO. I mean, that's almost over $16 billion for the Bank of West deal uh, from BNP. Oracle's buying Cerner for $28 billion. I think I mean, have long are, tails, though. These, are, these yes. are deals that have been on the cards for a while. Those are like, some big deals, though. Yeah. I... Yeah, I think I, I think we would have had those deals going forward. I think we've also had some IPOs today, which is positive too. Um, we had the Zenia IPO earlier. We were talking mm-hmm. about that. So, I, so I think I think it's all. We knew that we were going to have a bumpy ride. We knew that this was going to happen. Everybody talks about the one thing you can be certain of right now in terms of price action is that we're going to see higher volatility, and I think that's kind of almost what we've now got to get used to. We've been used to very low volatility. Like a, a 1%, 2% move on a day was, it's been unheard of for a long time. Mm-hmm. Used to be the normal. Now we're kind of maybe getting back to that. Yep. Uh, fun. Good times. Uh, okay, so that's sort yeah. of the setup of what we've been talking about in terms of the market action, DC versus COVID. But there's a lot to dissect in DC. So we're going to go to Anne-Marie Horton next and kind of break down where we're at. Clearly the White House and Senator Manchin are getting on their boxing gloves. They have them on. They're in the ring. They're fighting it out. We're going to get the latest. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. 
It was the no that was heard around the world yesterday. Senator Joe Manchin goes on Fox News uh, and says that he will not support the current infrastructure bill of about $2 trillion. He's walking away from it. Um, Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, really goes after him, um, calling him basically a flip-flopper. Then today, uh, Joe Manchin outlined some changes to Biden's uh, $2 trillion economic agenda that would mean his support. He He had a radio station interview in his home state of West Virginia, and he outlined a roadmap. Um, joining us now, Emory Hardern of Bloomberg. Hey, Emory, what do we know that was in this roadmap that no one knew before? I mean, I thought they've been talking about this for months. Yeah, it's exactly. And we're also hearing a little bit more detail of like the gossip what's going on in this radio interview. He's saying it's not the president, it was his staff. But when it comes to a roadmap, he said that he would only support a $1.75 trillion bill that what he says truly overhauls the U.S. tax code, wants to make it fairer, that lowers the cost of a broader array of prescription drugs than the current bill. So right now, those seem to be his top two demands after this really stunning yep. standoff between the senator and the White House. So, AMH, is he negotiating again? Uh, <laughs> it's obviously not a hard no. How should we think about this? It does seem like a little bit of a negotiation. And following his interview and the subsequent response from the White House, Signum Global Advisors came out and said, this is Manchin posturing. He's using this as a negotiating tactic to really try to get the top-line figure down and also just pivot the bill to a few points instead of a lot of points and to fund them well for a longer period of time. So it does seem like Build Back Better is dead when it comes to what the how much they want to put in it in present day terms, but potentially next year they can get somewhere. But Senator Schumer wants a vote on the bill come January, which we know is just weeks away in the new year. Yep, and that's all because of its 2022 uh, midterm. So I was mentioning it earlier, some of the things that were going to expire, like the child tax credit at the end of the year, um, forgiveness on student loans, like these things that like have, and you read it all the time, made a material impact um, in people's spending power. What happens with these things if we can't get BBB passed? Well, Manchin has uh, also said that he still wants work requirements for benefits, such as expanding child tax credits, as well as mean testing for those that make more than 200000 annually, making sure they're not eligible. But a number of people in West Virginia, a majority, are benefiting from those tax credits. So it seems like he's not exactly against them, but he certainly wants to amend them. And potentially, these are the issues. Also, an excise tax that helps individuals, and especially in a state like West Virginia, uh, coal miners that deal with potentially issues with their health and lungs. These are things that are going to come up in January and potentially will go into a smaller scale back version of Build Back Better. Is Manchin still a Democrat? <laughs> you asked me this earlier. He is still a Democrat. There was that story of, uh, over the summer that he allegedly was talking about leaving the party. If he were to, potentially, what I would envision, it would, he would be an independent and caucus with the Democrats, similar to what you have, say, Senator Bernie Sanders. But, yes, he, he, is, a, he is a Democrat, and he holds a lot of power, as Alex said earlier on television, being a Democrat. He wouldn't have this power if he was in the Republican Party. And if they lose the Senate in November, he his power and all of this... Uh, 
action he is able to drum up and the showmanship he has will really be uh, pushed to the side. Yeah, I was having this exact conversation with my husband yesterday um, when I was kind of reading in and I was like, man, why isn't Manchin just go be a Republican? He's like, why would he? He, he would have no power as a Republican. He would have complete power as a Democrat. Like he's, I, I'm not saying he becomes a Republican. I'm just, no, I And you could still caucus. You could become an independent. But still, he's not going to have the kind of sway. I mean, what was the what show was Kamala Harris on where she was asked about is uh, President Biden still president and she flipped out? Um, Charlemagne. Right. And the whole idea that like Manchin is running the party and running the agenda versus President Biden. Well, this goes to the heart of the president's big hurdle in the Senate. And he was a senator. He knows this very well. He was in the Senate for 36 years. This is why it's also so personal for him. He campaigned that he can be the person to bridge gaps and bring people together. It's whether it's Manchin, whether it's Senator Sinema, whether it's Senator Sanders, any senator, given that they only have 50 for the Democratic Party, any senator could have an issue with Bill Back Better or any other legislation or uh, any other appointment the president wants to make, and they can act like they are the president. The president said this himself in a town hall. And this is really what the problem is. He needs to get every single member on board. Um, which is the biggest problem for for the president right now? Is it is it Joe Manchin? Is it Bill Back Better? Or is it what's happening with COVID? So for his political legacy, it will be Bill Back Better. But I think for his legacy overall and the state of the American public and economy, it's obviously what's going on with COVID. And the president will be discussing this tomorrow in a speech. Uh, potentially, we're going to hear some new steps that they're going to be taking. But that is top of the agenda for uh, the president also, we just had an alert about an hour or so ago that Washington, D.C. is reinstating an inside mask mandate. So you start to see some of these restrictions that were placed on us in 2020 coming back in fashion, 2021, almost 2022. Yeah. I, whenever you I just whenever you hear someone say we're not going to go to lockdown, I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're going to go to lockdown. I just feel like <laughs> whenever you start home studios ready. Ugh. God, don't no, even say. Don't even I'd say. rather Literally, not. I cannot. Um, I know you guys have kids too, so yeah, yeah. I don't have any excuses. Although this time I, I, I will be because we moved. I will. I'm gonna be. I'll be in the shed this time. I swear. <laughs> oh yeah! Did you, did you finally? Is it all fixed up? Do you get the wood or no? Yeah, yeah, that's all done. So yeah, that's where I'm going. Basically, oh, I will be. I will be relegated to the shed. Oh, you're good. At least, and and this time I have a door. So basically, it could work for both of us. Um, all right, Emery, thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Uh, busy, busy, Emery Hordern uh, joining us from Bloomberg. Um, that kind of wraps it up, Guy. I think that, you know, for tomorrow. <laughs> That's just Monday. <laughs> it's just, I mean, is it just Monday? It literally feels like Wednesday. It's just sort of like making it through the grind and seeing how we settle out and how we're repositioning to the end of the year. I just want to get to the end of the week. I just want to get uh, to tomorrow, man. <laughs> yeah, okay. I, I agree. Short-term time frame seems to be operating here. Uh, as Alex says, that, that wraps things up. This was The Cable. This is Bloomberg. Stay safe. We'll be back tomorrow.